Welcome back to About South. This week, we're joined by Ryan Prechter, who's a visiting lecturer in the history department at Georgia State University in Atlanta. Ryan studies queer history in the South, particularly in New Orleans, and he joined us to talk about the 1973 arson at the Upstairs Lounge, which killed 32 people. Recently, artists, city leaders, and scholars have been revisiting this tragedy in order to understand why it unfolded and how far we've come. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. So let's begin by, if you would just tell us a little bit about the history of the Upstairs Lounge arson attack, what were the events leading up to the attack at the Upstairs Lounge, and how did you come to be interested in this event? Definitely. Okay, so June 24th, 1973. It was a Sunday in New Orleans in the French Quarter. The Upstairs Lounge itself uh, was nestled above a bar called the Gemini on the corner of charters in Iberville. Now, I guess if you have to look at a map of the French Quarter, but just know it's it's deep in the heart of the French Quarter. On that day, they were having what was called a beer bust. So it was $1 all you can drink from five to seven beer. So it was very popular. That evening, as more people started coming in, it got more and more crowded. And one of the reasons why it's so crowded is you have to understand the reason it's called the Upstairs Lounge is because you have to enter through a door that leads directly uh, to a staircase that goes directly up. So it's very unassuming, which was important for gay bars at the time specifically, or gay-friendly bars, if you will, that really, if you're just walking down the street, you just see a door in the side of a wall. But in there, you go up a staircase, and then there's another door, and then the bar in there. So it's getting packed. People are getting more drunk. As people do. <laughs> as people do. In the French as people quarter, do. Yeah. And it's a dollar all you can drink beer, right? And so as the evening started winding down, people were starting to complain about a man who was in the restroom had been in the restroom, like, for lack of a better word, bothering people. Now this is what uh, eyewitnesses would tell the police officers, so it was very vague in general, this man in the in the bathroom. Eventually... He was maybe making unwanted solicitations. Possibly, or just saying weird stuff to people, or just being generally drunk, you know? Right. And so eventually he was kicked out. Now, I'm bringing this up now because nobody was ever charged with the attack, but this man who would end up committing suicide a year later is assumed to probably have been the person who started though nobody was was ever indicted or arrested so um, I'm putting that out there we don't know the bottom line is at one point of that night in the evening as things are definitely winding down somebody starts hearing the doorbell now there's a doorbell at the bottom of the stairs specifically for if people call a cab you know this is before cell phones so the cab driver and it wasn't on the ground floor so the cab driver would drive up 
and ring the doorbell and somebody would go. So the bartender at the time, Buddy Rasmussen, started calling out to everybody, did anybody uh, order a cab or is anybody expecting a ride? Nobody says anything, but the bell keeps ringing. And at this point, it's almost, as it was described to cops, almost aggressively ringing. And since it's like somebody's holding down the doorbell and not letting up on it. So eventually somebody gets mad, uh, one of the patrons, I believe, and walks over to the door to yell at whoever's just, they assume it's a prank at this point. He opens the door and flames start shooting into the, um, the bar and smoke. It's these flames are coming from the staircase, which besides an emergency exit was really the main, the only real entrance, but also the main means of leaving. So quickly, Buddy, the bartender, acted very fast, starts gathering people, yelling at people as smoke's coming in and the initial shock's going down to leave the, um, to follow him from the main bar to a back room where they had a stage and they would do theatrical productions. And also that night, members of the Metropolitan Community Church, which is a gay-friendly Christian denom- denomination, if you will, or church, was holding a, hold meetings there, etc. And they were that night. He brings people through that room where there's a lot later on they'll find out that this is one of the things that helped spread the blaze so fast was just the whole place was a fire hazard in terms of decorations, in terms of costumes, in terms of everything in this room. And he gets as many people as as he can out of the emergency exit in the back and down the fire escape. The police or the fire department would show up minutes later because it is in the French Quarter as in smokes and flame at this point are coming out of the windows and it's just a madhouse he's there as he would tell police just trying to tend to his uh, friends and customers who might you know suffering from smoke inhalation or shock or they're saying they still have friends and while this is going on um, the fire department shows up starts trying to put out the blaze and it becomes very apparent very fast that there's still people in there Again, not just being a fire, uh, again, being a fire hazard and definitely not up to code, there were bars on the windows. And so people weren't able to leave through the windows. And even though it was the second floor, um, there would be a potential for escape. So quite simply, people were watching people struggling out the windows through the bars as they um, died right there. I believe 29 people died that night. Ultimately, it would be 32 people because three of which would succumb to their injuries in the following days. It was 31 men and one woman who died. The Times-Picayune, the local newspaper, the next morning had a picture of the blaze, um, the bar on flames on the front page. The headlines compared it to, I believe, Hitler's incinerators. was actually in the headline on the front page. And the fire superintendent said that at, well, I think he had just retired. That his entire career, he had never seen a fire take that much life. In fact, nobody could figure out if that many people had ever died in New Orleans from uh, from fire or fire-related causes. It's not an event I feel like a lot of people have maybe heard of. And so how 
did you learn about it and how did you become interested in it? Quite simply for that reason, <laughs> that I hadn't heard of it. I felt almost ashamed that I hadn't. The 40th anniversary of the fire was in 2013. It was the first year of my, um, or I was just finishing up the first year of the my PhD program in history and having to start figuring out or getting on what I was going to do my dissertation on. I was helping a friend move from Minneapolis to New Orleans at the time, and uh, I believe it was August, and so it was right before the semester was starting. And as we were driving, she turns to me and she goes, oh, you know, they just celebrate the 40th anniversary of the gay bar arson attack in the French Quarter. And I go, what are you talking about? And she goes, yeah, like three dozen gay men, women, allies died in this mass murder in the French Quarter in the 70s. I had never heard of it. Growing up, I grew up a, a queer man in New Orleans for 30 years. I spent a lot of time in the French Quarter and a lot of time around gay people <laughs> in the French Quarter. And I personally had never heard of this fire. So I just, um, as the artist who did, a Schuyler Fine who did a, um, currently has an exhibition, a collection about the fire at the New Orleans Museum of Art, said about his experience, I went down the rabbit hole too. And so just the fact that I didn't know about this, I knew other people <laughs> must not know about this as well. Um, and I thought that that was a complete injustice to not only their memories, but a story of gay life in New Orleans in the South is something that I think historians specifically have been trying to address over the last few years, illuminate, if you will. And so I felt that this would be an important part of it. Now, you've described the fire before using the term anti-Stonewall. So what do you mean by that term in your work? And how do you see the arson attack in relation to other landmark events in the movement for gay and queer people's liberation? Yeah, that's an, an anti-Stonewall is it's I mean, a problematic it's term in itself. And I, and I said that. But what I mean, what I mean by that, and that's not a phrase I wouldn't necessarily use going forward, but. The, the big thing about Stonewall, which the upstairs lounge fire was roughly four years to the day after Stonewall. Stonewall was over a weekend, but it began June 28th, 1969. This is June 24th, 1973. And for our listeners who have never heard of Stonewall. Oh, I'm sorry. Of course. The Stonewall riots, as they've been called, was an event that lasted a weekend at the uh, Stonewall Inn in New York City, which was a gay bar that during a police raid, which was a very common occurrence of the bar, um, for lack of a better way to put it, um, the patrons resisted. It wasn't just gay men, it was trans women, it was um, uh, straight allies, etc. Decide for lack of a better word, to fight back. And over the course of a weekend, there was essentially a standoff between the city of New York and a gay bar and it turned into not just, it turned into a rallying point for the gay community who had felt so marginalized and victimized at that point. So more and more people started coming out and basically taking part in what the media would coin as a riot, but really it was a, I guess you could call it a, a, uh, 
a protest slash standoff that eventually the cops relented and um, gave in, if you will. So it was seen as a seminal turning point in um, gay liberation history. And though there were definitely gay liberation groups that existed beforehand, and in fact, part of a lot of recent gay history, their mission is to um, dispel the myth that pride only began at Stonewall, if you will. But one of the things that I found interesting, and one of the reasons why I use the term anti-Stonewall is Stonewall is so seminal, one, because of the amazing story of resistance that it was to begin with, but also what came after. It basically became totemic in the gay community throughout the 70s and up till today and unleashed, you know, as the phrase goes, a torrent of people who came out of the closet and into the streets. The reason I used the term anti-Stonewall was one, none of that happened in New Orleans. What's interesting about the New Orleans gay community from talking to people who were there or scholars of this or activists who I interviewed is the fact that, and this seems sort of ironic considering what a vibrant gay community it has, but also had, was liberal liberation and politics, radicalization writ large, if you will, uh, had not found its way <laughs> to the gay community in New Orleans. And the theory about that is that there were these other avenues in which these other, you can use the word safe spaces loosely because they weren't necessarily safe, but they were private. So you had gay Mardi Gras crews, if you will, private organizations that put on their own balls and private um, places, venues that they rented out. This is something that didn't exist elsewhere. You had the gay bars in New Orleans, which were still ostensibly illegal and would get raided, yet you knew where they were and there was a sense of community there in some form. And so quite simply after Stonewall, there were, there were attempts <laughs> and there were uh, gay liberation groups and God bless them uh, at the time, but radicalization had not hit New Orleans. And what's interesting is, and it's impossible for me to talk about Stonewall without thinking of it in the context of the recent Pulse nightclub massacre. It didn't have the same hallmarks of the liberation story. The person who lit the fire was probably a gay man. So it didn't have the same ideas or strictly coded uh, characters of uh, anti-gay harassment. A lot of the people weren't identified. And the only way you can, um, how should I put this? The conclusion you came to there was that families were just ashamed and didn't pick them up. Or didn't want, you know. They're not going to go. Claim they're not going to go claim their who... son because everybody knew. It didn't say this was a gay bar in the newspaper, but they everybody in the city knew. You know, when you were arrested at a gay bar during a raid, it didn't say person was arrested at a gay bar in the newspaper, but everybody knew what the name of the gay bar was. And if you're being arrested for say loitering at a certain club downtown, um, you could lose your job over that. After. The blaze after the initial couple of days of shock and the news, etc., died down. Uh, if anything, and this is my, you know, my argument, the city went further into the closet. There's almost like this un, 
spoken complicity between the gay and straight community this is not this is messy this is not stonewall this is not anything to memorialize or celebrate or learn from whether people were conscious of that or not and if anything they went further into the closet and so that's part of what the story i want to tell too and one of the reasons why this fire when my advisor goes well why would the why is this fire at one point he claimed that i was obsessed with it and why is this fire so important and it was for that very reason why did it not spark the blaze that stonewall did and eventually radicalization will come to new orleans but that'll be four years later but um it's as if people retreated to their safe spaces and that's largely why this event went I guess you could say forgotten for 40 years because the community itself didn't want to talk about it. And we've seen recently that artists and filmmakers have devoted more attention to the fire, um, starting, as you mentioned, the 40th anniversary in 2013. Why do you think that so many people are interested in this story that a little bit, I think, as you're explaining, it kind of tells the inverse story of Stonewall. Right. You know, it's in a Southern space that maybe had a bit more freedom and flexibility because of, it was New Orleans. And New Orleans has this right. kind of carnivalesque culture that can, which is a culture that both allows and constricts. Yes. Right? It, it's a... It's, it's Mardi Gras is a religious holiday, technically. Exactly. It's, <laughs> it's a very fluid sort of space in terms of what's permissible. Mm-hmm. And when something's fluid, like, sometimes it's tighter and sometimes it's more loose, right? Exactly. Now, and then the fire happens and it causes this sense of kind of sadness, but it leads to internalized mourning, not a public reclaiming of something. Or a public just not even reclaiming, but claiming. And so I see completely what you mean, that this is an interesting moment and event for thinking about how the story of gay liberation is not just this one-way trajectory up led by quote-unquote progressive places right and so then i guess my question is as i said earlier why is it getting more and more attention now you think? yeah no i think i think that's fascinating and i don't have one easy answer <laughs> but like it happened uh in my own experience it seemed to snowball into a collective i i, I don't know tr- trying to bring justice to the situation so for example it all stems around the 40th anniversary uh 2013 and Mitch Landrieu comes out. Mitch Landrieu was the mayor of New Orleans at the time. He's recently made a lot of news because he spearheaded the removal of uh, Confederate monuments in New Orleans. And they have, they memorialize the fire. There's now a plaque on the ground outside the door, which the fire was lit. Mitch Landrieu's father was mayor during the fire, Moon Landrieu. And he didn't even, he didn't, famously, he didn't cancel his vacation at the time. New Orleans is a very Catholic city. The archdiocese refused to release a, um, I guess, a public statement of mourning, which is something that would be expected if three dozen, there weren't all necessary from New Orleans, but three dozen people in the city die, tragically, together. That same year on the 40th anniversary, the archdiocese came out and issued an apology, essentially, for that. 
And so this interest, one, in reclaiming the forgotten history is also coincides with this idea of righting the wrong that the city had done collectively, both in the heteronormative spheres, if you will, and also in the gay sphere as well. What's interesting is, again, I bring it back to Skylar Fine, who currently has an exhibit about an art exhibit concerning the fire at the New Orleans Museum of Art. When I interviewed him for the dissertation in his studio, he was saying that there was not only little to no interest in the people who were there, who he could find, who were still alive, helping him or, you know, just talking to him, but, uh, and I, I don't want to tell his story for him, but just, you know, there was open hostility when it came to, say, trying to get funding for the collection from possibly uh, gay-centered grants, if you will, or those who promote these things, because they saw it as not a moment to memorialize, not a moment to celebrate. And that goes to show you that the idea of gay liberation, those totemic steps, had to be things you had to celebrate. And I think more and more people are realizing that, that you do need to talk about the tragedies that have happened since Stonewall. You know, for more than just we have more fight to fight, but also, you know, these are victimized, marginalized communities to begin with, and essentially you're agreeing to silence them. What is at the location of the upstairs lounge now? It's offices. I'm not sure oh. specifically what it's for. Last time I went there, the uh, I stood outside and it just looks like it's office space. I believe the building's still owned by the per by whoever owns the downstairs bar, which is still there. The Gemini is still there, and that was the bar that was underneath it before. But the door is still there, and the plaque that was put a few a few years back in front of that door on the ground. I've seen trash bags on it. I've seen countless tourists walk by and never, ever look down. It's very unassuming, but it still exists. You know, it's still, the building's still there. But I don't even know if the people in it know the history of it. specifically about New Orleans, how does the Fire at the Upstairs Lounge fit into that history of gay New Orleans? And how does just understanding the event allow us to think about gay communities in the South or in urban spaces mm -hmm. in the South? How does it kind of nuance sort of the overall sort of national understanding of gay liberation and then how the South fits into that and specifically how New Orleans fits into that. Oh, I, I, I think that's great. Um, <laughs> let me see if I can unpack this. Well, besides it being, I guess, for lack of a better word, a fascinating story in and of itself. And when three dozen gay people get murdered in a city, you can't overlook that as a chapter of the city's gay history. But really, what I think is interesting about what it says about the larger uh, gay community in New Orleans itself and the narrative is what happened afterward, is the four years afterward. It was when, one of the reasons why the, as I said before, you could say liberation hadn't come to New Orleans 
is because there were these, quote, you know, not so safe, but safe spaces, right? You had your gay Mardi Gras cruise, you had Bourbon Street, you had certain bars, the Marini neighborhood had become a vibrant gay residential neighborhood. There were means of escape that maybe other cities that post Stonewall, there was a lot more activism, did not afford. Also, when you bring the fact that there's the South into it, if you go to other cities with uh, gay populations in the South, this isn't an unheard of story. You know, um, there are the, the idea that gay life didn't exist in the South, first of all, is a complete misnomer or that people didn't just move to the coast as soon as they hit 18. But they found these different places. It's when the National came to New Orleans that everything changed. So as I said before, whether as a direct result of this or not, pretty much status quo happened. People went back to their corners and didn't speak of this fire, or at least it almost served as a warning, a warning to people on some level. Four years later, Anita Bryant comes to town. Now, for those who, and I, at this point, I, I, I forget that, you know, which is obviously might be a good thing that Anita Bryant is not a household name, but she was a very famous pop singer and country music and gospel singer. She was the face of Florida Orange Juice, I think she was, and she did commercials for them. And in the 19, 1977, she, she became the face of the anti-gay movement nationally. She spearheaded a referendum in Miami for, to over, for Dade County to overturn a gay rights ordinance. This happened in spring 1977. She, she went out there and she rallied and she became the face of this and she won. And they overturned this gay rights ordinance. Immediately after that, she announces she's going to go um, sing in New Orleans. She's going to do this like summer pops concert at the municipal auditorium right next to the French Quarter. That's when, and essentially she's also saying that this will go hand in hand with her bringing her anti-gay show on the road as well. It's at this moment that what gay rights groups there were that were there said, okay, we have to protest. Anita Bryant was more and more being seen as a threat in the gay community nationwide. So she shows up. It's early June, 1977. Again, all this goes down in June. This is why June is pride, month, by the way. And um, they think maybe, you know, a couple hundred people show up. 1,500 people show up. Jackson Square, in the heart of the French Quarter, just a couple blocks away from the upstairs lounge was, becomes a rallying point that they even the people who put on the weekend, because it was a weekend um, of concerts, uh, the event, did not realize. And they marched through the streets to the municipal auditorium in a way that you had never seen happen in New Orleans before. And quite simply, I mean, looking back in hindsight, it's this idea that your safe spaces can quickly go away. It's eight years since Stonewall, and now so many um so much progress had happened in terms of certain ordinances that had been passed in major cities that protect gay people in terms of housing or uh, employment whatever and now comes this woman who says i can take that all away from you and after that pandora's box is open but in a good way so there should be an expression for that but um 
almost overnight within the next year, these organizations, in particular um, here, which stands for Human Equal Rights Association, I believe, got massive influx of new members in New Orleans. Gay publications, journals, newspapers open. Suddenly, they're getting involved in politics and groups like LAGPAC, the Louisiana Gay Political Action Committee, gets formed. And now the same uh, municipal leaders who are ordering raids on gay bars are now in gay bars in the late 70s trying to solicit votes. And so in terms of, and the reason I talk about Anita Bryant bringing that up is just the juxtaposition from the upstairs lounge. If anything, that was, they, they came to their senses after that. They said that it can get worse. It can get worse. We can't just forget and move on and not cause a ruckus because three dozen gay people died. It could be any of us one day. It could get worse. And so I feel like it fits in there into the story of gay New Orleans more than just being a fascinating chapter, but really it's the hinge, I see. And I think also it's one of the reasons why the city is so, especially the gay community has been so focused on it lately, is for these larger sort of extrapolated meanings uh, what does it say about our own history, how we treat this event? It's re- It strikes me it's really interesting because it seems, it's not so much, as you said, the fire was likely started by a patron of the club mm-hmm. who was likely a gay man himself. Right. Right, like all, so it wasn't like this outside attack necessarily the the dishonor comes in that the city and families refuse to memorialize and it's not like right. the cops didn't show up or the the no. fire it, there was there was an investigation right um yeah but it's the fact that it was you could die and no one wanted to remember and it's interesting to me that this moment then happens before the aids era which one of the things you hear about the aids era is that People are dying and people are pretending like these people aren't dying. Right, exactly. And so it's kind of an interesting precursor that it's it's this indignity that not only not having your life, your full life appreciated, but that even in death, people are refusing to acknowledge your death. And maybe it sets a different tone for how a city like New Orleans, I don't know how New Orleans dealt with the AIDS crisis, but it they kind of had a an idea that they had had that type of experience before this national crisis. That, that's absolutely right. I think uh, it reminds me of, I think it was Harvey Firestein who said that, and I'm paraphrasing here, that gay liberation would happen tomorrow, and this is from probably the 80s, would happen tomorrow if every gay person suddenly turned purple. And then during the AIDS crisis, gay people were starting to turn purple. And you couldn't avoid the fight anymore. And in many ways, I think the story of the upstairs lounge is people trying not to face that, to try to forget it, to try to deny that they're also vulnerable in some way and go to their safe corners. Historians who focus on you know, queer history in general have been trying to 
changed the paradigm of in recent years is this idea that eventually gay these gay communities happened modern gay communities happened in the 20th century when people escaped uh, quote escaped you know their bucolic sort of um marginalized life or oppressive life and went to places like Greenwich Village in New York or went to San Francisco or went to LA in the 20s where really what's interesting is that in the 1920s they did the exact same thing in the French Quarter um it was French Quarter was not it was a place you went you know if you as they say if uh you want to get robbed, basically. It was not, it was before historic preservation sunk in. And so this artist, bohemian artist community grew up in New Orleans. And I remember thinking, you know, this story about people leaving the South and going to the East or West Coast, specifically Northeast, is just wrong, you know, or at least there's more to it. And other people have been trying to tell the story all throughout the Gulf Coast specifically, whether it's Mississippi, Mobile, Pensacola, places like this, where um, not everybody moved to San Francisco and New York in the 20th century to live their gay life and to be part of a gay community. And I think that that's sort of the larger narrative here, or at least where I'm trying to put this story into. It's complicated why we pick up certain stories at different times and what work they do for the present. It's not, um, and it's also, these aren't easy, like I said, it's not always this one-way trajectory of how these things happen. It's ebbs and flows, and it's localized. History is messy. I mean, it's something I tell my students. One of the reasons why we have so many movies and stories about things like World War II, or about war specifically, is because it makes sense. There's... It, you know, and it, the reality is more complicated, but we see there is a beginning, there's an end, there are good guys, there are bad guys, there's, um, you know, a s- struggles ensued, there's victories and there's tragedies, but the progression goes upwards and you know when it ends, you know, Treaty of Versailles aside, <laughs> you know, after right. World War One. But um, when you get into the messiness four years after Stonewall, liberation hasn't hit New Orleans, what you're asking, what does that mean about us? Where are we complicit in this? And in in many ways, I feel especially the city coming out full force to memorialize this is a way of dealing with one's own collective conscience, if not consciousness. We'd like to close by reading the names of the victims of the arson at the Upstairs Lounge. Partners Joe Bailey and Clarence McCloskey Jr. Dwayne Mitch Mitchell and his partner Louis Brizard. Mrs. Willie Inez Warren and her sons Eddie and James Warren. Reverend William Larson. Dr. Perry Waters, Jr. Douglas Maxwell Williams. Leon Maples. George Motti. Larry Stratton. Reginald Adams, Jr. James Hambrick. 
Horace Skip Getchell, Joseph Adams, Herbert Cooley, David Gray, Guy Anderson, Luther Boggs, Donald Dunbar, John Golding Sr., Adam Fontenot, Gerald Gordon, Kenneth Harrington, Dick Green, Bob Lumpkin, and four men who were buried in Potter's Field, Ferris LeBanc, and three unidentified white males that the city refused to release for burial to the Metropolitan Community Church. May all of these victims rest in peace and know that we remember them. You can find links to more information about the Upstairs Lounge, as well as contemporary efforts to memorialize it on our website. We'd like to thank Ryan for sitting down for this conversation. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia, and we recorded this episode in East Atlanta. Kelly Vines and Ajua Danzo are my co-producers, and Lindsay Baker tackles our marketing. Our music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com, as well as all of the social media places. You can also visit our support page if you like our content. You can pitch us a bit of support. And you can also be a patron on Patreon. Links are on our website. We're on mid-season break the next two weeks, but we'll be re-airing two favorite episodes while we're gone. And we're back on September 21st, getting to the bottom of the age-old mystery, Who Said More Room, Daniel Boone? Until then, take care.